0: This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, overcoming our culture's war on the American family. Written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician, Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks.
1: You're listening to Quick to Listen, each week, we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today, and I am at long last joined by my old compadre, Mark Alley.
0: Hello. It's been a couple yeah, of weeks. I know.
1: You've avoided the podcast, avoided me, avoided CT.
0: Yeah. We're not taking it personally. i Cali- just just give you a foreshadowing of my precious moment. I've been in California That's right. People wanted the
1: foreshadowing. No, no one asked. <laughs> okay.
0: So I can't I can't decide whether to tell you about my fishing or my golf.
1: You're also welcome to share about wine country or Disneyland. Like, your interests can be a little broader. Okay. All right. So who's joining us today?
0: Today, we are joined by Philip Carey. He is a professor of philosophy at Eastern University. He's the author of, among other books, Good News for Anxious Christians, 10 Practical Things You Don't Have to Do, which I highly recommend, and a lecturer in the Teaching Company's Great Course Series, including a series on the history of Christian theology. So welcome, Philip. We're really glad you could join us today.
2: Well, thank you. Glad to join you.
1: Phil, I I feel like I went to, I don't know if rival is the right right word, but I went to Messiah. So there's somewhat of like Ah. a rivalry. Down the
2: road from us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are the bad guys. Yeah. We like you anyway. Good to know.
1: Yeah, I I mean, the thing is, is like if they're both kind of like Mennonite related schools, you can't really have enemies between them or even. Well, if you do,
0: you have to love them. So it doesn't really
2: matter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We just want to beat you in basketball really, really badly and then we'll love you. Sure.
1: As one does. Okay. As one does. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Our listeners may not know this. We're actually not going to talk about the Mennonites today, but we are going to talk about something controversial. Surprise, surprise. Ah, that's good. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. This week, the first Revoice conference will commence in St. Louis, Missouri. On the website, the conference describes its purpose as, quote, supporting, encouraging, and empowering gay, lesbian, same-sex attracted, and other LGBT Christians so they can flourish while observing the historic Christian doctrine of marriage and sexuality. As these things go, anything to do with sex is controversial, and this conference is no different, with the evangelical Twitter and blogosphere alive with debate about the merits of the conference and of the quote-unquote spiritual friendship movement in which the conference is grounded. Some are concerned that, quote, supporting and encouraging Christians of these, quote, sexual minorities, which is how the website names them, is a slippery slope ending in a liberal relativistic Christianity that has lost its ethical moorings. Others believe that if one observes the, quote, historic Christian doctrine of marriage, Christians of any orientation should be able to gather together and talk about their concerns and thus be supported and encouraged by one another. At the heart of these conversations is the question over whether same-sex attraction is in itself a sin, that is, is it a disordered desire, or if only it is on acting the attra- on that attraction that makes it a sin. How we parse this distinction makes a difference in how we understand not only sexual attraction, but also how we understand the nature of temptation common to all Christians in all manner of contexts. All right, we have some interesting stuff to talk about today. Before we get into all of this, though, I want to thank everyone who has been here a longtime supporter of the show. And by that, we mean everyone who subscribed to the show as a result of listening to it. And I actually want to take some time to let everyone know that there is now a new way to support the show. And you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. And that's a way that you can show your support if you're already a subscriber and you're looking for other ways to do that you know, as part of that, we just want to give you sometimes a window into more of what we do at CT. I don't know exactly what people's image is of, but Mark is not just going around telling golf stories the whole time. So I needed to set the record straight about that. Mark, what is something that you do, do as editor-in-chief?
0: Uh, well, it's a variety of things naturally, but uh, probably this last month would be a picture of one part of what I do. I attended an evangelical Jewish conversation in Washington, D.C., and then later that week, I attended a uh, Orthodox Capital Orthodox Evangelical conversation in Boston. And at the end of the month, I attended uh, the Global Summit, which is a gathering of Black leaders in uh, in Grand Rapids to talk about ways to encourage one another. One of the parts of the job that is most interesting to me is for me to interact as edit editor in chief of CT with these various groups and to help understand where they're coming from and try to also talk to them about. Uh, and specifically when it comes to Jewish and Orthodox things, evangelical perspectives on things. So it's a pretty interesting travel sometimes.
1: Cool. Well, maybe we'll even take some time in the next upcoming weeks for you to say some more specific things about what happened at these events, because I'm sure they're of interest to all of the people that are listening to this podcast and like kind of getting into more of the the heady spaces of this world that we're a part of. So if you'd like to support our podcast again, we now have a new place for you to do that. It's at morect.com slash podcasts. morect.com slash podcasts. And thank you again to everyone who has supported the show in this way. All right, Mark. So I'm wondering if we can do a gut check, you know, to some of the stuff that we just described and you know, this conference has was announced a couple months ago, but as we've noted, there's been a lot of takes about what this conference means and what its significant is. And I'm wondering if you can just give me your thoughts about the reaction to the conference itself.
0: Well, I think I've mentioned this on another uh, Quick to Listen podcast when we've discussed issues of human sexuality and that I, I am I moving into that phase of my life called the cranky old man since I've been debating, talking praying about these issues since I was in seminary, which would be in the mid-1970s. First in the context of the Presbyterian Church, then when I moved to the Episcopal Church, and now it's in evangelicalism. And I've so there's a part of me that goes, ah, do we have to keep still talking about this? So part of it's weariness. But part of it, I think this particular conversation that we'll actually be talking about today was the first time in a long while I felt like, okay, here's something that we can actually... Gain some insight on, because I think the issues at play here, which we'll talk about in a minute, temptation, sin, what's the difference, what desire is neutral, what desire is sinful, I think uh, that conversation could really help us whether we're talking about human sexuality or not. So I I have a glimmer of hope that actually this part of the conversation might produce something useful for us.
1: My gut check is essentially, I always find it interesting when people who normally agree on almost everything out there split very viciously on an issue. And I think that in many ways, not always, but in many ways, many of the people that are most at odds right now, many outsiders would look at them and say, aren't you guys kind of the same on most things?
0: Yeah, right.
1: And, and yet the closer you get in, the bigger the gap seems to be. But I don't know how big the gap actually is, because as I mentioned um, before that we were recording this show, I'm somewhat of a theological amateur. And so, you know, where exactly the theological divergence is happening is a little bit less and clear how to
0: significant me. is it? What difference does it actually make in your prayer life and in your daily life? That would, that would be something I'm, we're going to ask as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's do it. All right. So, Phil, take it away. Summarize for us what's kind of going on here.
2: Well, yes. We've all heard sermons that say, you know, if, if you're being tempted, that's not sin. It's only sin if you give in to the temptation. Take that, call that sort of the soft line on temptation, softening of temptation. It turns out, as some folks in this conversation have recently pointed out, that the Protestant Reformers, Luther and Calvin and their friends, took a hard line on this. They said that the desire that makes up our temptation is already sin, even before we consent to it or give in to it. So, call that the hard line. Behind this all is, I think, especially two passages. The first chapter of the book of James, where James says, People are tempted when they're dragged away by their desires. And desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And then flip that over to Paul in Romans 7, where he said, I wouldn't have known about sin if it hadn't been for the commandment that said, you shall not desire. That's not how it's normally translated, but that's actually what he says in the Greek, which is the translation of the tenth of the Ten Commandments, of course. We usually translate it, thou shalt not covet. But the Greek that Paul is using in his translation of it is desire, the same word that, that James uses. And he's saying, well, this desire that we have is forbidden by the commandment. It says, you shall not do this. And then he says that uh, sin produces all kinds of evil desires. So it's as if sin is even more uh, deeper even than our desires. It's something so deep in us that it produces evil desires that then produce more sin. And Luther and Calvin and the, the Reformed tradition and the, the Lutheran tradition really emphasize this, this aspect of sinfulness, and they take this hard line. And that's kind of unfamiliar to many of us, because we're, we're used to hearing this more comforting notion. Oh well, you know, if you don't give in to temptation, it's not sin. The flip side of it is, I think, two pieces of good news, which is why uh, Luther and Calvin and and their ilk insist on this. And one is, um, we have no basis for innocence and, and and righteousness except Christ Himself. Our only hope is Jesus Christ, and that's really good news. We we don't we're not in a position to put our hopes in how well we deal with our temptations. We don't deal with our temptations well. Our desires are sin we can't find hope there. We have to find hope in Christ alone. That's the first good news. The second piece of good news is we're all on the same boat. All of us have these sinful desires. All of us are corrupted by the sin that comes from Adam. All of us have a corrupted and perverse human nature, not just people with same-sex attractions, but all of us, you know, heterosexuals in nice marriages, and we're Christians, and our desires are disordered as well. So we need to help each other, and we need to help each other learn to be friends in ways that take these desires and turn them around toward the good. And that's going to be difficult for all of us, and all of us need to help each other with that.
1: You've quoted a lot of different scriptural passages there, and I want to return to scripture for a second and maybe back up to how the Bible itself defines temptation.
2: The crucial thing about temptation, especially in in the Greek of the New Testament, it's a word that means to test or to try or to um, you know trial, as in uh, 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 giving, uh, putting something on trial, testing something. So it can mean, for instance, persecution. The persecution of the church is a kind of testing of the church. When the evil one comes to Jesus and and tempts him three times, he's putting Jesus to the test, which is a little bit similar to the way Israel put the Lord God to the test out in the wilderness. And again, um, when the Old Testament is translated into Greek, that same word gets used, the word for testing. So not all temptation comes from within. Some temptation comes from without. Some temptation is, is from um, persecution or or for, from the devil. But much of our temptation comes from within, and that's the kind of temptation that James is talking about, where we're dragged away and seduced by our own desires, and desire, when it fully conceives, bears uh, fruit and, and gives birth to sin. So um, not all temptation is is about desire, but the crucial issue for, for our current conversation about sexuality is clearly going to be focused on sexual desire.
1: Should we just be using that word temptation, or are there like more nuanced other words that we need to use to describe the range of things that are going on here? I mean, temptation as it relates to sin versus temptation as it comes to Christian persecution don't seem helpful if they're translated with the same word.
2: Right. I think it would help us if we would talk more about desire than about temptation. But then we're going to have to talk about what kinds of desire, and we're going to have to, I think, recover some of the ways that the Christian tradition has talked about desire. Going back to especially Paul, the word that Paul uses for desire, which is also the word that James uses, can sometimes be translated lust, because in some contexts it means sexual desire, but it can be translated greed, covetousness any kind of greedy, excessive, disordered, perverted, inordinate desire can be this Greek term epithumia. Then for the history of theology, it's really important to notice that this word gets translated into Latin as concupiscence. And if you studied any theology from Augustine all the way up to Calvin and into the Reformed tradition, this word concupiscence is a huge word, and it might help us to actually recover that word. Concupiscence means disordered, excessive, uh, deranged, perverted, fallen, corrupted desire, and we all have a lot of it. And if we recognize that, I think we would all be in a different place, and we'd be able to recognize each other as, as fellow sinners and friends in the work of mortifying our concupiscent desires.
1: So one other semantics question, too. In English, at least, desire is a relatively neutral word. Right. That also seems to be somewhat obfuscating some of the other issues that are there. You know, we're, we're talking specifically, I mean, I think we mentioned at the beginning, disordered desires, but um, the adjectives you just used were a lot stronger than that. But there's nothing in the word inherently when it comes to desire that renders it one way or another.
2: Agreed. The problem is that the English word desire is fairly neutral. The Greek word that both James and Paul are using is, is always kind of shady. It's, it's, it's not an innocent word. And the question before us, I think, and it's been set before us by people engaged in this discussion is, can we really speak of innocent human desire? John Calvin strikingly says, all human desires are evil. That's a direct quote. All human desires are evil. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and he's really <laughs> he's really stepping into the same waters as Augustine. I mean, that's the hard line on temptation and desire, right? But if we actually accepted that view, wouldn't that put us all in the same boat in a way that remove any possibility of, of us heterosexuals looking down on homosexuals and saying, Oh, those people are so perverted and disordered and, uh, and, 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 and so messed up. Well, no, all of us are perverted and disordered and messed up. That's where we start. And then once we recognize that, I think we're in much better position to help each other spiritually.
0: Well, help me spiritually here, because I disagree, ah. with, I disagree with both of you. I don't t- tend to think of the word desire as negative or neutral. I guess I've been imbibed the notion that desire is ultimately a positive thing. It's so that even the desire for any desire we have that we pervert, like the desire for excess amount of food or money, is actually a desire for something really good and profound and godly. It might be a desire for security. It might be desire for a type of joy. My understanding was, so correct me here, that that was something that Augustine tended to emphasize, that our deepest desires are, in fact, godly, and that our surface desires are merely going in that direction, but often get warped.
2: Right, exactly. I mean, I've been channeling Augustine so far, but only one side of Augustine, and that's the the dark side, the negative side. Let's look at the positive side. All desires that are natural to us are good. All things that God made are good. Everything that God made that we could possibly desire is a good thing to have and to desire, uh, all the way down to wealth and, the, and the, the mud in your toes that squish in your toes and make you feel good when you squish squishing it. Um, all of it's good. But, Augustine argues, and, and here you go from the positive to the negative, our desires are disordered. And what he means by that is, we desire good things but in the wrong order. So um, we desire wealth. That's good. If if you have enough wealth, you can feed your children, and lots of people need more wealth so they can feed their children. That's a good thing to desire. But some of us desire wealth more than we desire the welfare of our fellow human beings, and we're willing to exploit them for money. And that means our desires are disordered. We put money above people, and lots of us do that. That's the kind of thing that uh, Augustine means by disordered desire. And of course, the deepest disorder is that we put just about everything ahead of God, and God is the one whom we should love with our whole heart, mind, and strength. And we love other things much more than we love God, and that's our fundamental concupiscence, our fundamental disordered desire.
0: I think that's helpful when we start to think about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Because on the one hand, if if mere desire is a problem, and Jesus then was able to refute the devil because he had actually no desires, it doesn't strike me that his his example would be very helpful at all. Right. But the fact he had that no he. Concup-
2: Desires. Yes, he had no cause... desires that were disordered and out of place. he right. had everything well ordered in his soul, and therefore he thoroughly succeeded in resisting and fighting back against this testing and temptation. Yeah, yeah. so
0: that when he was tempted with bread, he really did want bread. He didn't course, want it in yeah. an, uh, and only by him really wanting it does it make sense for him to be able to resist it in a way that is helpful for us.
2: Because he wanted bread, but he wanted to honor God more, and so exactly, if, if it's a choice between honoring God and having bread, he's going to honor God. Yeah. And we do that every time we we fast.
1: This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible, a translation that is both faithful to the original languages and really easy to read. Today, we are talking with Rachel Myers, who is the founder and CEO of She Reads Truth. Rachel, it is great to have you here. Thanks for having me. So what book of the Bible is most popular for She Reads Truth readers? She Reads
3: Truth readers, hands down, the she's and the he's love Advent. I know that's not a book of the Bible, but it has to be said. At Christmas time, they love to dig deep into scripture, which I think is so cool. And again, this isn't a whole book of the Bible, but they have loved reading a specific selection of Psalms called Psalms for Prayer, you know, where like one day is like a, you know, a prayer for mercy, a prayer in time of trouble. But in terms of books of the Bible, by far the book of Romans is our most widely read. This year, the she's and the he's loved exodus i think that was maybe our second most widely read book of the bible of all time which is incredible as an old testament book
1: you can learn more about the christian standard bible at csbible.com slash
3: ct god is a genius storyteller and the evidence of this is threaded throughout scripture These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
1: All right, we've mentioned Augustine, we've mentioned John Calvin. Are there some other theologians that have had some provocative and important ideas when it comes to understanding desire and temptation?
2: Maybe the way to think about this is to think about how you get from Augustine to Luther. Calvin and Luther are pretty much on the same page on this. So Luther, you can think of as the guy who really sort of uh, tweaked this uh, in an important way. Augustine got this started by saying that our nature as God created, it is good, but it's been corrupted in the fall, and therefore our desires also have been corrupted and disordered. But, Augustine says... Uh, even though our desires are concupiscence, they're this um, this uh, disordered desire and forbidden by the Tenth Commandment that says you shall not have concupiscent desire, nonetheless, Augustine says, these desires are not sin if you don't consent to them. right? So in, in, in baptized Christians, baptized Christians will continue to have these desires, Augustine insists. None of us uh, are perfect yet, but if you don't consent to those desires, then it's not really sin. You only have sin when you consent to it. Luther comes along. And he says, no, even the desire itself is sin, because Luther really wants to insist that our whole life we need to be repenting of our sins and putting all our hope in Christ alone. And that second part, most of us evangelicals, we can like that second part. But the first part, that we should be repenting all the time, that's a little hard. But Luther uh, insists on it. It's the first thing he insists on in the first of the 95 Theses. We are penitents. We should be looking back at the old self, the self of concupiscent desire, and trying to kill it, mortify it. And that's our job. But on the other hand, because we are in Christ, we can fight that battle cheerfully and gladly. We just need to make sure that we don't treat ourselves as if I'm innocent and those people over there, like maybe those gay people, are somehow especially depraved. No, no, no. We're all depraved together. We don't have an innocent sexuality that we can say, oh, My sexuality is innocent, and theirs is not.
0: There are a couple of uh, interlocutors who are uh, saying that the differences in how we understand this is a difference between Roman Catholic theology and Protestant theology. To what extent is that true?
2: Yeah, I think the difference is um, not all that important for the current uh, discussion, although there are a couple of people who think it is. What's happened is that um, Denny Burke and Rosaria Butterfield, who've been writing about these issues for a while, posted a blog on the public discourse saying, this really amounts to a difference between Protestants and Catholics. Catholics think that concupiscent desire is not really sin until you consent to it. But Protestants say that even our concupiscent desire is really sin. And that's right so far as it goes. But then they didn't quite notice that this notion of concupiscent desire goes back to Augustine. And Augustine... In a a set of, of, of writings that Catholics and Roman Catholics are especially known for approving these writings, Augustine argues that every sexual act within heterosexual Christian marriage is sin, because every single such act involves concupiscent desire. So every time a good Christian husband and wife commit this marital act of sexuality, even when they're trying to do it for the sake of having children, they are sinning and need to be forgiven, and they should be praying, "Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us." Every day. So that's a pretty radical claim, and it's there in Augustine, and it's there. It's it's part of the Christian tradition in the Middle Ages, and um, it's not emphasized as much by Luther and Calvin because Luther and Calvin don't want to push people towards becoming monks. But it's there in the Catholic tradition, and it's there in Augustine, and it's it's part of what Augustine meant by concupiscence. So wouldn't it be great? If all of us recognized that every time we are sexual, we're being sinners, then we wouldn't be able to put ourselves in this place of saying, "Oh, I'm innocent, and those those gay people, they're they're awful."
0: I would say that this is also a fault line among uh, between Christians, certainly Protestant Christians, and some uh, Jews. I, I'm in dialogue with a good friend, Orthodox Rabbi, who continues to call me a, a good person, and I keep on trying to tell him that. <laughs> That I'm yeah. not, but he says, all your actions are good, and I say, well, there are these desires of my heart that aren't good, and his re- rebuff is, well, but if you don't act on them, they're not, they're not bad. So, this does, the, the fault line is also in uh, other places as well.
2: Right, there's a fault line between um, Calvinists and Wesleyans, you know, Reformed and Methodist here, because the Methodists traditionally believe that Christian perfection is possible which Augustine explicitly argued against, and, and people like Luther and Calvin would never have accepted that view. Yeah, I, I, I myself am with Luther and Calvin on this. I think that the notion of Christian perfection is probably bad for us, because you might think, oh, gee, I'm perfect, and you're not. Um, and I think this is, you know, not not good for us spiritually.
0: But I sub- I assume that the Wesleyan view is grounded on the notion that concupiscence is not a sin unless it's acted upon.
2: It, yeah, it has to be
0: because yep. I can imagine a person who is morally uh, good in his actions, her actions. I suppose I don't know. I've never been that, but maybe <laughs> I, I can only be I only be charitable and assume someone has managed that.
2: Right, and that's the way Wesley argues it. it. I mean, he he doesn't claim to be perfect himself, but he thinks it's important to recognize the perfection of others. And I think what Wesley gets right is is we should practice something like Christian admiration, the way Catholics practice the admiration of the saints. Christians have Christian heroes. But, you know, I think, uh, some of our Christian heroes might be gay Christians. Uh, some of them might be monks who were, uh, you know, had same-sex attractions, but, um, learned to, to to turn those attractions into, to charity. So, yeah, one quick note about this. We, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that the spiritual friendship, uh, movement takes its name from a book by a 12th century monk named Aylred Rivlot. So it's traditional, but it's quite Catholic.
0: Okay, well, there, that's a problem right there, huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, you know, if you want to mortify sexual desire, then being a monk is about the best way to do it. And it may do us some good to have some people around who are living a celibate Christian life and are learning something about what it's like to live as sexual beings, as we all are, but not to be exercising that sexual side of ourselves in a way that evokes concupiscent desire. Because if Augustine's right, what he's thinking is that every time that sexual desire is put into practice, it goes overboard. It it, it ends up being using other people, it ends up being excessive, and the only way to be pure of that is simply not to exercise sexual desire. That's not what everyone should do. Lots of Christians ought to get married, but we need some people who are trying celibacy. And so I think we should be encouraging and supporting those who have a vocation to Christian celibacy.
1: Are there any other theologians from the last century, (laughs) or maybe two, that have, you know, thrown their own wrench into this type of discussion?
2: Well, we have talked about Wesley, uh, and he was only, what, 200 years ago, I guess. Yeah. One of the things that's happened is that the way we think about sex has been, has changed in part because Protestantism has left behind anything like the sense of guilt that we're not monks. I mean, Luther had a deep sense of guilt that he was leaving the monastery. Now, that sense of guilt is, is not present among most Protestants today. So I think we end up wanting to have a certain kind of innocent sexuality. We want to think of our desires as innocent, and we end up getting a bit alienated from the larger Christian tradition where we're not so innocent.
0: Maybe not theologians have thought freshly about this, but how has Freud, for example, Uh, affected the conversation uh in your view?
2: Denny Burke and Rosaria Butterfield, uh, in their intervention in this conversation, pointed to Freud and his notion of sublimation, which is a fascinating notion that some of the folks in the spiritual friendship movement have been using. Freud suggests, you know, that, that all of our desires, well, not all of them, a huge number of our desires, a huge amount of our desires come from libido, from something like sexual desire that gets Transformed and transmogrified in all sorts of different, uh, and subterranean ways. And that Freud was saying that, that one of the things you want to do is, is turn sheer sexual lust into some constructive things. Like he thinks that most forms of good work are really sublimated sexual desires. That is to say, sexual desire uh, sort of provides the energy in a disguised form for all sorts of other things like, um, oh, intellectual work, like what we're doing now, right? That's, that's, that's really sex. Uh, um, Well, okay, if so, then that's a good use for our sexual desires. We need to be doing something with our sexual desires than than just intercourse. But two things, I think. One is um, the notion of sublimation, I think, is fairly useful, but it's different from the way the Christian tradition thinks about desire, because Freud thinks that, in one sense, what we're doing now as we talk intellectually really is, in some deep sense, the same desire as sexual desire, the same desire. This is not how the Christian tradition thinks of desire, um, especially people like Augustine, where desires are defined by what it is you desire, by the object of desire. So to desire good conversation is just a different desire from to desire sex. Right? They're two different desires. Now, it may be that some of the energy of the one desire comes from the other desire. Now, if that's so, then we've got, I think, a much more profound figure than Freud who can help us think about this, and that's Plato. Plato, the great Athenian philosopher, the great philosopher, eros, of of erotic desire, and he thinks that the energy of eros, or erotic desire, filters into our souls and everything we do, and so he and Freud are on the same page in that way, except that Freud is kind of mechanistic, and and Plato is not. Plato realizes that what we deeply want is something eternal. Our deepest erotic desires are for something like eternal beauty, and someone like Augustine comes along and says, you bet. A- absolutely right. Our deepest erotic desire is for the beauty of God. So, uh, Augustine can say, yeah, I mean, Plato gets some things right. But that does not mean that sexual desire is the same desire as desire for good conversation or desire for friendship. What it is, I think, is that the energy of our sexual nature can get turned and channeled in all sorts of directions, some of which is very, very constructive. And if that's what's meant by sublimation when used by the spiritual friendship folks, I think that's great. We should practice that.
0: Yeah, I think there's a reason that so often sexual love is a metaphor for our love with God. You bet. Even Paul uses that. I think there's there's something common to those desires, the desire to for union with God and the union with another person.
2: Yeah, Plato asks, you know, why is it that when you fall in love, it's like a kind of madness? And uh, he says, well, it's because you want eternity. And I think Christians can agree with that. And, you know, we have to worry sometimes about the madness of falling in love. It can be destructive, right? Eros and erratic longing is not innocent. It's very, very dangerous. We're going to have to discipline it and keep an eye on it, and we're going to have to mortify some aspects of it. But nonetheless, it's built into us because it's tied to the way we love God. So let's, by all means, use that energy and, in a disciplined fashion, try to turn it to good.
1: All right, let's talk practical things for a second. I mean, with all due respect to the conversation that we were having earlier. With all
0: due respect to philosophy.
1: (laughs) I mean, guys, I love philosophy. I just, you know. Well, the love of
2: wisdom is a very practical thing. So there we go. All right. So
1: uh, tell us, Phil, what difference does it really make on a practical level to have these different views of temptation, sin, and desire?
2: Well, I've been suggesting all along, part of the practical difference is we really benefit when, when we don't think of ourselves as innocent. That gets rid of a certain kind of self-righteousness that's a real temptation for heterosexuals saying, oh, those those gay people, there's there's something awful and, and disgusting about them. Well, no, the awful and disgusting stuff is, is in all of us, and uh, it's helpful to recognize that. The, the flip side of it is, I guess, uh, going back to um, your gut check right at the beginning, I was thinking, what was my gut check about this issue? And for me, the gut check happened when I was reading the autobiographical writings of people like Wesley Hill, who's a, a self-identified gay Christian, and he's writing about what it's like to be, you know, an early adolescent evangelical Christian, uh, expecting to to contribute to the, to the life of the evangelical church, on fire for the Lord, wanting to get married and have kids, and then realizing, why is it that I'm not attracted to girls? Why am I, you know, I'm a 13-year-old boy, why do I find myself attracted to boys? And, you know, wrestling with that. And, and being, trying to, trying to identify himself in some way other than homosexual and, and failing and realizing that the only honest thing to say is, yeah, that's, that's me. My, my attractions are to other people of the same sex. I think it's very important for those of us who are heterosexual to sympathize with the pain of that and to, to resonate with that and to realize that kind of, of disappointment and pain is one that we can share. And it, uh, the, the the difference between homosexual and heterosexual is not a gulf that can't be crossed. We can recognize that kind of pain and disappointment, and therefore do our best to help folks who have had that pain and disappointment work on becoming good friends, which is, I think, the great compensation uh, for not being able to find yourself getting married. Because it may well be indeed that friendship gets us deeper in some ways, to the love of Christ than marriage.
1: And the type of friendship that Wesley Hill and the, the spiritual friendship community advocates from what I understand is one that's much more robust than maybe the average American's definition is.
2: You bet. They're thinking of things like uh, lifetime vows, um, which, again, was part of the monastic tradition. The the closest practice we now have to that is is like becoming a, a godparent, where when you become a godparent you are tied to another family for the rest of your life. That's the kind of, of commitments that these folks are looking for. Uh, lifetime commitments that sustain you with people who are going to be there for you. And not just going to say, oh, I'll always be there for you, but actually, you know, make a solemn promise to be there for for each other. That's really hard to do in our current um, economic and social landscape. So pushing back against the forces that divide us from each other, that say, oh, you have to go off and go to graduate school. You have to go off and do that. You can't stay with this person, unless unless you're married, right? If you're married, you can stay with somebody. But otherwise, you can't. You have to break up these friendships. We ought to push back against that. And that's what well, one of the things that Wesley Hill and Eve Tushnet and Ron Belgao and these folks are saying.
1: Well, this has been a really great conversation. And I'm glad that we got to chat philosophy and theology for a little bit. I'm sure we've said our fair share of controversial things. So please let us know if we have and how we've offended you, you know, et cetera, et cetera, <laughs> by going to Twitter. We're on the Twitter at CT Podcasts. You can also send us an email at podcasts at com, and we welcome the feedback that you have to offer us. All right. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets a chance to share something that has recently brought them joy. In this case, Mark will make us all less joyful by talking about (laughs) California. I'm teasing. (laughs) All right, Mark, go ahead. What would you do in California?
0: What would we do in California? Well, we had a family gathering. I I actually performed a a wedding for a niece. I got even though wow. even though I'm not ordained any longer I was able to get permission from San Luis Obispo County to do a service for one day so that was a joyous occasion. So did some fishing with my grandkids and played some golf with my brother and my son so it was a good time.
1: Right on. Did you guys like drive on Highway 1 at all?
0: A little bit but not the most gorgeous part that the most gorgeous part is uh shut down right now because of mudslides but uh just going to the beach.
1: Yeah. Which is pretty just nice to looking see. Looking at the water every day, right? Yep, Exactly. Very cool. Where can people find you?
0: I publish something called The Galley Report. You can find it at slash The Galley Report. That's G A L L I, in which I link to various articles I read and make comments. In fact, uh, Philip's article on his comments on Revoice may very well end up there this week. We'll see.
2: <laughs> All right. Philip? I just finished teaching. A summer course for the first time in my life, uh, about an intensive summer course for teachers. We've started a new uh, a new Master's of Arts in Teaching at Eastern University where um, wonderful Christian teachers who are teaching at Christian classical schools are coming to, um, to think together about how to, to teach in a Christian classical setting. It was great.
1: What was one of the favorite lectures that you heard?
2: Well, we didn't do lectures. We did seminars. We read books together and talked, and everybody wanted to talk. Everybody had something to say, and everybody was helping each other learn. And that there's, there's an, an erotic component to that a, a desire for wisdom and knowledge that was was absolutely delightful
1: I'm really jealous okay so tell me what the re- most the book that you know raised the most robust discussion
2: what's fascinating about that is it was the hardest book we read which was Alistair McIntyre's book who's justice which rationality uh, a long account of the Western tradition and why um, rationality belongs within tradition so that Traditions are not inherently irrational. Traditions can be rational, but they're going to have to be self-critical. There's going to be crisis and conflict, but that's why traditions don't have to be sort of relativistic and, and you know, you can't say every tradition is equally good.
1: Yeah. Wow. I'm I mean, again, if you like get a bunch of people who've read the book and you get to like argue about it, that sounds like the best type of argument, you know. I love it when it's one where it's like an informed sense of debate. Yes.
2: When we can argue like friends and even disagree like friends. I think we're doing well.
1: So where can people find you after this podcast is over?
2: Um, They could email me at pcarry, P-C-A-R-Y, at eastern.edu. That's my my university address at Eastern University. I'm happy to to talk theology with people um, over email. I do it all the time uh, because people email me about the great courses stuff as well.
3: All
1: right. Very cool. My precious moment is that I went to Chicago's Columbia Festival this weekend, twice. And the not so precious moment part of it was that they didn't really have good Colombian food. They had some Colombian food, but not nearly the amount of Colombian food that I wanted. But they had lots of live music and got to dance a lot, which I love going to listen to live music and dancing. And some people there even complimented me in my dancing, which felt very (laughs) flattering since I am not Colombian and didn't grow up dancing like that. But it's like, yes, I've improved in this.
0: So. Your life is justified. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) But I mean, there's, I mean, it's summer in Chicago, which means you're like hearing live music outside multiple times a week. I like can't complain about that. People can find me on Twitter at MEPAYNL. That is it for us this week. Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred. And Richard Clark. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Apple Podcasts, though, is a great place to rate and review the show, and we're grateful for everyone who has done that. If you would like to support the podcast, again, if you're a subscriber and looking for other ways to boost quick to listen, you can do that by going to morect.com slash podcasts. You can make it possible there. So thank you for everyone who is on their way to doing that. We really appreciate it, guys.